This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980CFPL. Quote from Dr. Chris Mackey. It's not ideal, but we don't have all the vaccine in the world and hard decisions do need to be made. And I think this is one that actually has a lot of scientific and public health science behind it. Nothing is perfect in a pandemic. If you look, we're getting vaccine in an emergency way. It hasn't necessarily gone through everything that it has to. It's being approved under emergency circumstances. So that in itself makes things different. But delaying the vaccine, what can that mean? Let's try and understand that. Joining us right now is Dr. Byron Bridal, who is an associate professor of viral immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. Dr. Bridal, how are things? Uh, Hello, Mike. Uh, Things are going okay. Thank you. Let's look at something that has certainly been raised at times. We can go back even to, let's say, early January in the UK, and there were almost warnings of this. Hey, just a second here. If we're going to be delaying second vaccinations, we got to we got to look at this closely and and carefully and then things have been spreading it was vancouver or it was bc and and now it's other provinces including ontario that have decided to delay when we look at this from a scientific perspective what exactly do you see as being maybe one or two major issues here uh yeah i definitely see two major issues mike so uh just before I get into those two things, like you you noted, this issue of uh, lengthening the intervals between the two-dose COVID-19 vaccines has been a slippery slope issue, uh, and that in itself has become a problem. So uh, initially, it was Quebec that was proposing the longest interval some time ago, which was up to six weeks. And I don't think scientists were concerned at that time, uh, but the extensions weren't you know, really dramatic. Uh, but now the problem is, is this has led to a slippery slope such that now the Canadian government is proposing increasing the intervals between these vaccine doses out to four months. And there is absolutely no empirical data to support this. I can't emphasize that enough as a scientist. So, so indeed, Mike, I, I see there's two issues. So first of all, your listeners have to understand a little bit of the history as to why this decision was made. Uh, and then they'll understand why scientists are up in arms about this. Because as scientists, we live in the world of empirical data. We use proof uh, based on data that that uh, protocols that we are going to employ, like vaccination strategies, are actually working properly. And so the way this got started, actually, is um, a, a person, an epidemiologist at the British Columbia Centre for Disease Control, published a letter to the editor of the New England Journal of Medicine. So it's important to notice that, yes, this was uh, published, but it was not peer-reviewed. It was not scientifically peer-reviewed information that was published. This is very important to note. And in this letter, this epidemiologist took uh, a tiny data set from Pfizer's phase three clinical trial data, which they had submitted to Health Canada to receive approval for their vaccine. And they extrapolated from this data set uh, drawing the conclusion that Pfizer themselves were wrong and their conclusion that their vaccine was only 52% uh, efficacious at best after a single dose and extrapolated this information, making assumptions, many assumptions, to draw the conclusion that the, a single dose of the Pfizer vaccine was a remarkable 92% effective 
which is almost as effective as the two-dose regimen. Now, and, and this has been propagated, and it has to be understood that this is the basis on which our government has made the decision to extend the interval between these two-dose vaccines all the way to an incredible two months. And now what, what people have to understand is the data set from that was provided to Health Canada by Pfizer was never, ever, ever designed to test a single-dose regimen of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, there was it, it, the 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 tiny bit of uh, this tiny subset of data that this researcher used to extrapolate these calculations was statistically underpowered for this use. Um, and I can't emphasize enough: one, this made uh, headlines headlines a week ago when this individual uh, uh, proposed this uh, information. And but what people have failed to realize is that published side by side with this letter was a rebuttal provided by the researchers at Pfizer clearly stating to this to the author of this letter that their trial was never designed to draw the conclusions that they drew. So this was a published rebuttal from the company themselves. And yet this information has been propagated. I have received uh, complaints from individuals who have been attending the vaccination clinics that they are being told that there's published data stating that the single dose efficacy is 92% effective. And that's the justification for extending this out to four months. So people have to understand that this is based on an extrapolation of data that was never designed for this purpose, uh, with a lot of assumptions plugged into the epidemiological model to generate this number. And uh, we do have to look no further than, for example, Israel, where they did try based on Pfizer's own uh, optimistic reporting of 52% efficacy after single dose. They tried that in Israel and it didn't work. They, they found that it didn't seem to be 52% uh, effective. And, and so they declared the single dose regimen a failure. And yet we are expecting Canadians to uh, be protected for up to four months after the single dose. I can't emphasize enough as well. Pfizer has clearly stated they cannot guarantee what the immunity looks like after 21 days after the first vaccine, which is why they have stated over and over again that this vaccine, their vaccine, has to be administered at a three-week interval. Health Canada has clearly stated over and over again that the vaccine has to be administered at a three-week interval. And yet, for some reason, even though we have all the empirical data, we know, we know that this vaccine would administer a three-week interval is 95% effective at protecting people from COVID-19. We do not know. It's based on assumptions. Uh, we have no idea how protective or unprotective it will be at longer intervals. That is the fact. And one of the other assumptions that has been made here, Mike, which is important for people to understand, is when the government made this decision, it was kind of assumed that, yes, they don't know exactly, they don't have data to back up precisely, uh, you know, this, this decision they're making, they won't know exactly whether it will work well or work poorly. Uh, but the assumption being that um, even if it only provides partial protection, what's the harm in that? At least we'll have more people partially protected. But you see, this is what's very important, Mike, is it could, it could be potentially harmful. The reason is this. What they haven't taken into consideration is if we go out to a four-month interval and the, the duration of immunity does not last four months, then people are thinking they're partially protected, but they aren't. Perhaps in the last two months of that interval, they're not protected at all. Worse, we don't know if immunological memory conferred by that dose of the vaccine lasts out to four months. And if that immunological memory disappears before the four months, guess what? That second dose will not function as a booster vaccine. And they, they will not achieve ultimately the 95% effectiveness that, that they think they're going to receive. And the other thing is, uh, and this is something that is of particular concern, if, we, if, if you look at 
all the numbers, everybody agrees that uh, universally that after the first dose and, and confers less protection than the two-dose regimen. That's why we're not getting rid of that second dose. The intent is still to give everybody that second dose. But this is the issue. When you're dealing with an infectious agent like like the SARS coronavirus 2, you have to ramp up immunity against it as quickly as possible. If we get a huge population of people in which we are inducing subpar immunity, that is the ideal circumstance for this virus to mutate into a highly immunoevasive form. Uh, everybody would be familiar with, with uh, bacteria that become, and this is a huge clinical problem, right? Uh, bacteria that have become antibiotic resistant. Antibiotic resistance is driven by misuse of antibiotics. If we did the same thing with antibiotics, if we had a very dangerous bacteria and we only gave people half the doses of the uh, antibiotic regimen, Right. Instead of treating for 10 days, we only treat for five days. That is a recipe to drive dangerous antibiotic-resistant forms of bacteria. And it's no different for this virus. We have to hit this virus hard. The idea behind this vaccine, uh, the, the vaccines that Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca uh, have made, is that we ramp up the immunity as quickly as possible so this virus does not have a host with subpar immunity. That's applying a little bit of selection pressure, immunological selection pressure, over a long period of time. So you see, there uh, both of these, uh, the original data that was made to generate this decision and the assumption that there is no harm that could be made ultimately in lengthening these intervals are both incorrect. And I can't emphasize enough as a scientist that we have to go with what we know, which is we know for sure that at a three-week interval for the Pfizer vaccine and a four-week interval for the Moderna vaccine, they are highly effective. Anything other than that is pure speculation. We're talking with Dr. Byron Bridal, Associate Professor of Viral Immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. And you're, you're raising things that all of a sudden you feel helpless over, but you've said that you know, the easy way for the non-scientific mind to look at it is, well, a little bit of protection is good. Let's get as many people a little bit of protection. That sounds great. To anybody who does not deal in viral immunology, yeah, that, that's fine. You're saying that actually could be dangerous. It could. It could help breed highly immunoevasive variants of this virus. And then for those of us who are trying to insist on applying the, the approved uh, dosing regimen, that's going to affect us. That's going to affect everybody if, that, if this happens. Now, what I have to point out is this idea of driving immunoevasive variants. That's pure speculation, right? I have no data to prove that. But that's the issue as well, is the government has no data to disprove it, right? So they've made a lot of assumptions, but the other scientific assumptions on the other side, the negative side of the equation, are equally valid. Um, and, and so that is why, as scientists, we're saying we simply have to go with what we know. And none of us, scientists will not have, we don't have a problem. I have no problem with a two-month dosing interval if we have data to back it up, if we have data showing that the immunological memory conferred by the first dose lasts until the second dose is given. If we can show that there is a reasonable amount of protection conferred until the second dose is given, and we have data that suggests that it's not going to drive the emergence of dangerous variants. And this is usually done by going back and having the companies redo a phase three clinical trial with the new dosing regimen. And that is exactly why Health Canada cannot legally support 
this extended dosing regimen. That alone should concern Canadians. We have that law in place because Health Canada is here to protect the health of Canadians and make sure that we are not being experimented on. So let me emphasize this, um, uh, Mike. Health Canada has one and only one protocol approved for Pfizer and Moderna and AstraZeneca, all these vaccines. And they cannot deviate from that unless they have empirical evidence that they have approved to justify changing it. So that means that changing these intervals is, this is pure experimentation on people. And this gets to a major issue that your listeners have to be fully aware of. We have clinics opening up all over the place right now to administer these vaccines. These vaccines are experimental. In the first place, even the vaccines used as they're supposed to be used are are only approved for emergency use. They have not been licensed for routine use. Uh, And that probably won't happen for another couple of years. So anybody who's enrolled in an experiment has to provide fully informed consent. And this is a concern of mine. I have now visited and and talked to many people that have been attending uh, these COVID-19 vaccine clinics. I have some serious concerns. One is that um, individuals seem to be being asked to provide verbal consent about these vaccines. There is actually a document, uh, and and as you know, I I actually emailed this to you, Mike, and your listeners are are welcome to contact me at the University of Guelph if they would like these documents. So one is the, the Ontario Ministry of Health has provided a consent form that is to be signed by an individual before they receive the vaccine. The consent form clearly states that before they provide consent, that individual has to read or have had read to them the vaccine information sheet. The vaccine information sheet is also provided by the Ontario Ministry of Health. So people want, they can get both of these forms from the Ontario Ministry of Health website. And I encourage them to do so before they go to a vaccine clinic. And this vaccine uh, information sheet for Pfizer and Moderna states and only states that they are uh, required to get their second dose three weeks later for the Pfizer vaccine and four weeks later for the Moderna vaccine. It's actually stated in three separate places on the information sheet. There are no alternative dosing protocols listed there. And what this means is that people are providing consent in the clinics to receiving their second dose three weeks later. And yet the last station when they leave our clinics is to sign up for their second dose. In most cases now that people are being told that they will be emailed the uh, the date of their second dose, but almost universally, especially if people are under the age of 65, they are being told that almost certainly their dose, their second dose, will not be given for another two months. So we actually have major major issues around fully informed consent, and it appears that fully informed consent is not being practiced properly in our current clinics. So individuals, your listeners, need to advocate for themselves if they do wish to have the protocol administered as it's been approved by Health Canada, they need to advocate for themselves and realize they have this right and that is indeed what they are consenting to. Well, Dr. Bridal, thank you for raising this issue. We're always looking for as much information as we can get and you've given us all kinds of information today. Please keep safe and again, thank you for what you are doing in, in raising some of these concerns. It was my pleasure. I just want everybody to make the most informed decisions that they can. Thanks again. Dr. Byram Bridal, Associate Professor of Viral Immunology in the Department of Pathobiology at the University of Guelph. There's a lot to unpack there.
We have been checking in on frontline workers throughout the pandemic just to see how things have been going. Ask how many of them have had a vacation. Ask how many of them have been able to find a way to not bring their work home with them. It's been tough. Joining us right now is Linda Silas. Linda is a nurse and also president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, and we connect with her in Ottawa today. Linda, how are you? I'm fine, thank you, Mike. Last year, at about this time, we began to really appreciate the work that frontline workers were doing because all of a sudden there was a new variable in their day, and that variable was a pandemic. Here we are. I mean, we're not doing a a year-long check-in. We've checked in throughout the year. But what would you tell us about nurses who were working right now and have been doing so since this pandemic began? Well, as the op-ed I just published with uh, Vicky McKenna, the president of ONA, is they're sick and tired. Uh, you know, yes, we've received a lot of uh, applause, a lot of calling uh, healthcare workers, nurses, heroes during this pandemic. Uh, but at the same time, and you mentioned it in your intro, and I appreciate that, because not everyone is realizing that working under these emergency measures means no or very little vacation, no job posting. So you can't take a break from one heavy unit you're working on and move to another unit. You uh, are designated or redeployed into units you've never worked in and maybe never wanted to work in. All of that stress is really weighing on uh, nurses, but also on the full healthcare workforce. We'll have to talk about redeployment because that doesn't exist in every job. And I think we need to know a little bit more about redeployment. But when you look overall at at what would improve the situation, is there anything that you could point to and say, that right there, that would make a big difference. We need to start doing that. Mm -hmm. Well, for sure, the long-term care sector has opened up uh, what we have been saying uh, for years and years and years. Uh, We need better staffing. We have very sick people already in our long-term care sector, and uh, we need a good uh, ratio of uh, caring staff, uh, of nursing staff, compared to residents. And what science is telling us is you need about 4, 4.5 hours of care per residence per day. And in some uh, long-term care facilities, we were as low as 1.5 hours of care. Uh, and without any stability in the workforce. So that meant no full-time job, no commitment to an employer because they were working in two or three facilities, no good training in occupational health and safety. Uh, So we hit a big uh, wall in long-term care. And then our acute care sector, our hospital, where the sicker of the sicker goes, uh, we were already short-staffed. Uh, Ontario, since the last provincial election, you've heard from uh, ONA, the union, and the association, RNAO, they came together and said to the politicians, we were short over 10,000 full-time equivalent. That's 15,000 nurses missing in Ontario, and that was, what, three years ago, uh, and it's worse today. 
We're talking with Linda Silas, who is a nurse and also president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Now, we knew that we were going to need more staffing when this began, whether it was long-term care, whether it was in our hospitals, it didn't matter. We knew that was going to be there. How much of an effort do you feel has been made to address that? Um, I'm hesitating because I, I have to say, in regards to increasing staff, in our healthcare facilities, uh, almost none. Uh, the governments and governments with a nest have really focused, for good reason, don't get me wrong, on public safety. We needed to make sure that all the public health measures were there to really stop the pandemic. You don't stop the pandemic in, when a patient is in intensive care. But what we didn't do on the flip side is was our intensive care, were our long-term care facilities well-staffed enough to absorb any shock such as a pandemic? We thought we were, because let's be honest, Ontario, uh, after SARS in 2003 and the big report, the Campbell report came out 2005, if I recall right, uh, the recommendations were strong and Ontario were leading the charge in Canada. In 2007-9 with H1N1 and right after that Ebola, us as a national union, we were telling every province, follow Ontario. They're following the precautionary principle. They're really uh, making sure workers are uh, protected well. With this pandemic, it fell, and, and now Ontario is as bad, if not worse, than anybody else. We're talking with Linda Silas, who is the president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions. Linda, let's get back to redeployment because it's something that doesn't exist in every job. And you mentioned it. You will sometimes be in a very demanding situation and then you can be redeployed to another situation where maybe the demands are at least a little different, no less demanding, but maybe the, the job is a little bit different. Can you explain to us how that works within nursing and, and the healthcare profession? Mm-hmm. So about 90% of uh, nurses in Canada and in Ontario, it's the same thing, are unionized. But in all our collective agreements, we have language that government can call emergency measures. For example, uh, when there's a pandemic or if they'd be a disaster in a city where you, you've heard it before, there's a big accident and we all get the call, please get to work as soon as possible. We as nurses and and the healthcare workforce know that. I call it, it's similar to when a code 99 is called, which means when a patient starts breathing or their heart stops, the whole team comes in and you just work together to make sure that you can have this patient survive. And then he or she is put uh, you know, on another floor or something. And then you debrief on what you could be done. Well, the whole healthcare system is in this crisis since, March 11 of last year. So for a full year, the stress has been on these workers and they've been called. They might have been working in labor delivery and they've been called to work on the COVID unit. They might have been working in med surgeries and been called to go work in the emergency department to do screenings for COVID-19. Or they could have been working uh, in surgical and be asked to go work in long-term care. Uh, And that is, we understand under emergency, we do that. We became nurses to help. Uh, But this 
is a long haul. It's over a year, and there's no end at the end of the tunnel. We're going to be in this for a couple of months still. So with that prospect, with not really knowing what the future holds, we can hope a couple of months, and, hey, that would be almost best-case scenario. How do you deal with morale that exists for people who, as you described, have not been able to have a lot of downtime, have have gone to work every day and have dealt with essentially the same thing and the same stresses for the last year? Well, we're working with every level of government. Uh, the federal government has a program, Wellness Together Canada. We're working with them. Uh, that's on mental health. And uh, to have peer-to-peer support for nurses, for healthcare workers, uh, we need to let the nurses and the healthcare workforce know that there's help out there. They have to ask. Uh, We're working with employers and provincial governments to make sure that we're going to be able to find ways to give time off to uh, our staff, to be able to give ongoing training that will give them a break. Uh, All of that continues on a day-to-day basis. Uh, At the same time, we're working with public health. Uh, CFNU, for example, my organization is starting a campaign to promote vaccination uh, because that's how we're going to get out of it. We have to, as the public health, the chief public health officers have been saying, we need herd immunity. Well, that means all of us doing our part by getting the jab. And our system will get back to a quasi-normal, and we'll be able to uh, do more progressive change. Just want to throw this out there simply because it was part of our conversation, and if you're unable to comment on it, Linda, please tell me that. But we were having a conversation about the time between doses that now exists in Ontario. Mm -hmm. Is that a conversation that is had at the nursing level? Uh, Yes, of of course. But uh, as I say often, that's way above my pay level. Uh, We have a national uh, advisory committee on immunization in Canada. They're the experts of the experts. And yes, sometimes when you put a group of experts in a room, it takes some time to make decisions. And also, when different information is coming out, they're allowed to change their mind. So yes, a public health nurse would tell you that you have to follow the guideline of the manufacturer. But the guidelines are changing gradually, and we need to trust uh, this advisory committee, which are not politicians here. They're the experts in immunization, the best of the best we have in Canada that are all working together. So, yes, they're expanding the vaccination, which is okay, because what they want is herd immunity. They want to make sure that we reduce the numbers of sick uh, COVID patients that are ending up in our hospitals, that are ending up in our uh, intensive care, and sadly, uh, too many are dying. Linda, as we close out, is there anything else you think we need to know about how things are going in healthcare right now that we haven't covered? Uh, please know that uh, everyone's doing their best. Uh, I think, uh, you know, healthcare, the healthcare workforce is and uh, we're just doing our best and we have to work more as a system as we've ever done Uh, we cannot have just our big hospitals working independently they have to work with our public health unit with our home care and with our long-term care Uh, 
And you'll see probably many changes after this pandemic uh, because just like you, uh, Ontarians are waking up to really what nurses do every day. Linda, thank you for what you do and what your colleagues do each and every day. Thank you so much for sharing some time with us today, and please keep safe. You too. Stay safe, stay strong. That's Linda Silas. Linda's a nurse and also president of the Canadian Federation of Nurses Unions, and we talked to her from Ottawa today. Okay, we are going to dig into a story now that has been dug into and has been discussed by Travis Danraj from Global News. And Travis has done a phenomenal job in chasing this particular story. And it goes back to Sam Osterhoff, who is the parliamentary assistant of the Minister of Education. And it looks at a speaking engagement that he has with a group. And we'll let Travis outline everything that has been going on with that. But it's it's the fact that we haven't heard much from the premier on this or from the premier's office on this. So let's go back over the details. Joining us right now is the Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, Travis Danrash. Travis, thanks for taking some time for us. Let's go back a couple of days on this one and just what was taking place. What can you tell us? So it was circulating uh, over the weekend on social media an ad that had been placed on Facebook that MPP Oosterhof, who's a Niagara area MPP, and as you said, the parliamentary assistant to uh, the Minister of Education, was taking part in a virtual event that was being organized by some student-led university groups um, that were pro-life that were anti-abortion and this event is called gen z challenging abortion and politics now no big surprise there because we know uh you know mpp Lusterhoff's position on abortion he's against it however you know i was looking into this and i did a little digging and the, the you know the organizers of this group, the National Campus Life Network, which is an anti-abortion youth group, uh, they have compared uh, uh, you know, abortion to the Holocaust. Their executive director has called Joe Biden a pedophile. They've used imagery of swastikas and lynchings and, and you know, previous protests that they have been a part of. And so the question was, should an MTP be associating himself, affiliating himself with this group? Uh, you know, we asked the premier's office about this, and, then, you know, the premier did address it kind of, sort of, in a news conference the other day, saying that nothing should be compared to the Holocaust, but didn't address the core of the issue as to Sam Osterhoff's, uh, you know, involvement in this, saying that he was going to have a call with him. Well, that call took place, apparently, uh, allegedly took place, but it, it seems as though when I contacted you know, Ustaroff's office yesterday uh, down in Beansville, they said that, yes, he's still participating in this event. So, uh, and there's been no communications with the Premier's office uh, in terms of how that call went. The Minister of Education is not commenting on this, and Sam Ustaroff's office officially, through official channels, is uh, not responding to Global News requests. But the reason I found out that he's still participating in this because I cold-called the office and asked, the receptionist, hey, is this still happening? Is, is you know, uh, MPP Ustaroff still participating? She said, yes, he is. 
so, I mean, that's kind of the nuts and bolts of this story. And there continues to be a lot of outrage about this and radio silence from the government. And there it is. I mean, you're asking questions, and it was addressed, like you say, sort of the other day. When something comes up and, and when you put in a request for information, take us through that as a reporter. What tends to happen? Usually we will get some sort of uh, statement or even a no comment. We haven't even gotten a no comment at, at this point. And, you know, I'm not the only one who has been looking into this. I'm talking to, you know, fellow journalists at uh, other publications, at national newspapers, etc. And they have all, you know, been trying to communicate with the government through official channels, email, etc., phone calls. Uh, and, and they're not getting any response either. And, and it's on this one is kind of duck and cover. Obviously, uh, MPP Oosterhop has uh, a base, uh, you know, that holds a lot of these same views. And I think the calculation here may have something to do with, uh, you know, the Premier's office not wanting to alienate that base. But certainly, you know, we thought we would get some sort of update in terms of how the call went. The other thing here is that, you know, this... It brings into question the vetting process for the MPP speaking at this event and his judgment. And it has been called into question many times before. Uh, you know, there was uh, a time back in 2019 where uh, MPP left the House during question period to go out and speak to a, a anti-abortion rally that was happening on the grounds of Queen's Park. And he said he wanted to make uh, abortion uh, unthinkable. In our lifetime, there was a picture, if you'll remember, of uh, MPP Ustaroff appearing in a huge group without a mask, not social distancing, when the guidelines were you need to social distance, and it even went against the restaurant's rules. Um, and, you know, there have been questions around, uh, you know, other issues with the, the MPP as well, and some comments that he's made. So uh, I, I guess the question here is how many passes does this MPP get, and has the Premier given him the green light to speak at this event? We don't know that right now. And the event comes up when? Events at seven o'clock tonight. It's a virtual event, and apparently it's at capacity. Uh, so they were saying initially that all were welcome. The event, uh, the registration has now been closed. Apparently, I just talked to one of my sources. There's a vetting process for attendees at this point. Okay, and so let's let's go. There's a vetting process for for what your your phone. Sorry, cut out just a little bit. For for, for apparently there is a vetting process if you want to attend the event. So uh, you register. You were you know there was a Google form where you could register online, and I am told you know by sources now that uh, these groups are going through and, and making sure that everyone is kind of aligned on on this stance, and it's not really open to the public, as they say. Interesting. Travis Danraz joining us, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. Travis, before we go, I guess the, the one thing that the Premier did say the other day was that it's not up to him to tell people how to believe. Was that an accurate uh, uh, portrayal know, of his line? Yeah, that, that, that essentially is it. And I don't think anyone is, is surprised, as I mentioned off the top, that you know Sam Oosterhoff would be speaking at an anti-abortion event. I think what surprised a lot of people is their connections and some of the rhetoric that these groups have been, been comparing abortion to the Holocaust, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and, and so, you know, it's one thing for the premier to say, sure, you 
can speak at this. I know that, you know, you have these beliefs and we're a Big Ten party. But it's another thing when there are these connections to hate speech and to hate imagery and uh, a sitting MPP who was the parliamentary assistant to the education minister who also is in charge of education policy to a degree is involving himself with these groups. And I think that's the big question mark here. Travis, thank you so much for staying on this story. I know you'll continue to do that, and we'll see ultimately what comes from the Premier's office on what has taken place. We really appreciate the time. No problem at all. That's Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News. So again, Sam Osterhoff still scheduled to speak at this event, which, as Travis has pointed out, is not open to the public, that you have to be vetted before you are allowed in, and the idea is that everybody's believing the same way. It brings up a question. It really does. It brings up a question, and this goes back to the Premier's statement when this was first addressed and that he was going to go and have a conversation with MPP Oosterhof, and he may very well have done that, but he has not replied, and as Travis pointed out, he hasn't replied to Global News, he hasn't replied to any number of people who are asking questions about this. The Premier had stated he's not going to tell people how to believe. Okay, well, that's sure. We shouldn't be told how to believe, right? But when what you are talking about is tied to hate speech, does that change anything? Does Does that change the way that that should be interpreted? Let's open up the phone lines, 519-643-2222, or you can email Mike at 980cfpl.ca. Rob has said, I'm not understanding how Randy Hillier got the boot so fast, yet Oosterhoff continues to be coddled, especially since it was because of Hillier's smear campaign against Patrick Brown that brought Doug Ford into power. Rob says, in my opinion, Oosterhoff should have been gone a long time ago. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting to, to look and and kind of examine the situation that you wind up being in when you take a post in government. And Travis Danraj pointed out just a few minutes ago that there's one thought that perhaps because there is a base of people that believes what Sam Oosterhoff believes that, you have the premier not wanting to, you know, upset that base, as Travis had pointed out. What do you think? When when it's tied to hate speech, should that draw a line? You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.